That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts, literally, to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions World Headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Many people feel that the horror genre is something you'll grow out of, something intended for adolescence, something to be ashamed of in your adult years. I come from a generation known as monster kids, those who grew up in the 50s, 60s, and even the 70s, when monster movies and horror films became readily available on television and later on home video. It was a great time to be a kid. Every Saturday afternoon or late at night, the Universal Horror Films would run, as well as off-brand genre fare like The Four Skulls of Jonathan Drake or The Beast of Yucca Flats. The movies got darker and more explicit over the years, and soon with special effects and makeup technology becoming much more sophisticated, there were few nightmares that could not be displayed on the screen credibly and, yes, horribly. To the young horrorgentsia, grow up was a common cry from parents to teachers and even from peers. The horror fans were the outsiders, and it was expected that they would evolve out of their fascination with horrific beasts and viscera, and most of them did. However, I contend that horror can be the most imaginative, dramatic, provocative, and introspective kind of stories that can be told. Not all of it, mind you. Some of it is just loud and abrasive and in your face and embraced just for its shock value, providing us something that our parents would never enjoy. But monsters are metaphor, intended or not, and the depths of characters created by the likes of King and Barker and Carpenter and Cronenberg and so many more make the horror genre to me a genre of everlasting freshness, depth, and imagination. When I was a monster movie-loving kid who was writing scary stories and making little 8mm movies, my grandmother once said, where's all that gruesome stuff going to get you? Well, Nana, aside from a lifelong career, it brings me joy and introspection. I love being scared, and I love to scare, but I also love to be drawn into stories of mystery and imagination. So, Horror at its best is a mature world of storytelling, and our guests today have both been toiling in its graveyard for decades. In the new film, Jacob's Wife, Barbara Crampton and Larry Fessenden play husband and wife, but they've been captivating us for years in the genre that has embraced them. Both of them have been on the podcast individually before, but it's a pleasure to have them together in A Marriage Made in Hell. Severin Films, one of the very best creators of special edition Blu-rays, presents the Euro Crypt of Christopher Lee 8 Blu-ray box set featuring new scans of 1960s classics Castle of the Living Dead, Crypt of the Vampire, Sherlock Holmes and the Deadly Necklace, Torture Chamber of Dr. Sadism, The Long Lost Challenge the Devil, and the never-aired anthology series Theater Macabre hosted by Lee plus a brand new 88-page book by Jonathan Rigby. Pre-order now at severin-films.com. That's S-E-V-E-R-I-N-films.com. And follow Severin Films on social media for details of their forthcoming releases, including the Dungeon of Andy Milligan box set, UHD debuts of Alex de la Iglesia's Day of the Beast and Perdita Durango, Hodorowski's Santa Sangre, New special editions of Grizzly, Day of the Animals, Nosferatu in Venice, and more from Severin Films. It's a special company doing very special editions, and you better check them out. Barbara, Larry, thank you for joining us again. It's really great to see you both. Oh, you too, Mick. Thank you for having us. Mick, that was the most wonderful opener. (laughs) 
Uh, oh, I really am a child that you're describing. I had the Aurora monster models. I watched. Oh, me too. Uh, uh, I, I, Famous Monsters of Filmland, all of the, uh, and Creepy and Eerie. I mean, I really thought I was a uniquely uh, uh, ostracized child. And yet I now realize it was all part of a historical reality and that it had to do with um, a television sale of all the old Universal movies to, uh, you know, to be packaged. And, and then there were children's foods and, and cereal boxes and count right, frankenberry oh. and count chocula <laughs> and and you know it was funny it was a very specific uh personal experience growing up this way and now historically you realize it's uh, actually a whole generation of of kids and i think we've been the people to push the genre because we care for it and uh and meaning our generation even though we're older um I certainly felt like I wanted to show how personal horror was and use those metaphors to tell uh, deeper stories. So, Well, that's kind of special about what both of you have done and what I tried to do as well. You know, it's not that I chose horror. Horror chose me. And, you know, I don't think you, people who pursue horror because they think they'll make money doing it, I think are are foolish um, and you can tell a movie that is made with commerce in mind, as opposed to telling a story worth telling. And Barbara, you came to horror kind of late, but you came from a life that was unlike any, talk about outsiders. You were raised yeah. in the Kearney. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, we talked about that before. Yeah. We did, but for the people who didn't yeah. hear that, mm -hmm. tell me a little about how that background affected you. Well, yes, I, I grew up in the carnival business. My dad was a concessionaire with fairs and carnivals. And every summer we traveled throughout America, mostly through Pennsylvania, Ohio, and Virginia. And we would go to a new midway in a new town every week. And uh, my father was a big storyteller and would entreat people to come into his game and spend money and tell stories and jokes. Um, and I was also surrounded by what we talk about in horror, a lot of misfits and outcasts and ride boys and people that would travel with the carnival and sleep under a ride in a, in a, a sleeping bag. And uh, they were just people that didn't feel like they belonged anywhere. And so a lot of the people that, that I grew up with were people that had a life on the road and didn't have any permanent home. And so storytelling became such a part of your life, but you as an actress, but later on into your career, you started writing and producing. And now with Jacob's wife, we may as well jump into Jacob's wife right now, um, because we're talking about maturity in a genre that is thought of as a stunted or immature genre. Um, and this has characters who are not, teens in a slasher but it's mm -hmm. got something more on its mind it's a vampire movie but it's also about marriage and commitment and the uh repression of perhaps the female character in the marriage who manages to find a way to fight back but all th told through the metaphor of vampires mm -hmm. well this story of how to keep a marriage going after 20 years and and, and how uh, you sort of, you know, lose yourself potentially in a long-term relationship and how you find your voice again uh, and the questions of how to do that successfully in a marriage. And we're all three of us long married people. Those questions are as eternal as vampirism. So I thought it was a good metaphor to tell the story of, of the marriage of these two people. And um, yeah, I, I do think that it's a story of, of empowerment and a marriage and feminism, but it's so much more than that. It's really the story of an older couple. And I was just so happy that Larry also said that he would um, love to play this part of, of Jacob because I've long admired Larry through years and years. And only in the last 10 years was I able to work with him. And, and we have a shorthand and an understanding of one another. And we were both long married people. And it just seemed to fit for us, you know, it was a nice fit. 
Yeah, Larry, your career began with a, with Habit, really, is the one that, that achieved the first notice. You were writer, director, star, uh, producer, everything. And you've made a career out of all of those things. And as an actor, you've performed in dozens and dozens of movies and television shows and the like. Here is one that you were hired as actor only. You didn't originate this, but you were brought in and hired to play a part. How unique is that for you? And how, what is the feeling of that where that's your only responsibility? Oh, well, I mean, of course, I, I love doing that. And you always come in and in a small production like this, you're still going to be trying to help make the movie. But it was great to be supportive of Travis and to be able to understand what he's going through in terms of, uh, you know, the director's process. And then to be, you know, Barbara and I live together in a house. And so not only were we able to talk as uh, the married couple, which was sort of our background work as actors, but also I could... Uh, you know, lend her an ear when she was talking about uh, producing woes and just the excitement of putting this movie together, which she'd taken so long to develop. Sometime earlier, uh, years ago, she had sent me the script and said, it'd be fun if you played uh, Jacob. But she was also still exploring for how to put the movie together and to polish up the script. So I had an inkling over the years of, uh, of that she was uh, working on this. And then when she finally made the call and said, do you want to play the part? It was very touching uh, that she still remembered me and that I still had a place in the film. So um, I, I, I like going down and, and just serving in whatever role is useful for the movie, because I think if everybody has that desire to, uh, to collaborate and make a film, that's really how these low budget movies get made. And Barbara, you are truly the producer. A lot of actors get a producer credit on a movie mm -hmm. as an enticement to be paid less. <laughs> uh, yeah. but, but you truly found, you found this mm -hmm. through the Shriekfest Festival uh, here in LA. Tell me how that came about and, and how you finally were able to, I think that was like 2015 or something. When Correct. You found it. Yeah. Yeah. I had just started producing, uh, you know, I, just to go back a little bit, I kind of realized when I came back with your next, um, after not working for a long time, that everybody that was working on that movie was a hyphenate. And they were really successful because as Larry said, was saying they were helping one another, you know, all these filmmakers, Ty West wasn't really an actor, but he was being an actor in Adam Wingard's movie because they were friends and, and he was going to be there to, to, to help his friend. And, um, Joe Swanberg was a director and a producer and a writer and an actor. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to come in and help my buddy, Adam Wingard and Simon Verrett make this movie. And I was very um, enthused about that experience and just felt really enlightened that, oh, this is really how you, how these young filmmakers keep, keep going and how they keep doing it is that they all help one another. So um, I, I was working on, uh, beyond the gates and we had just taken that out to the uh, to the um, LA Film Festival I think and very soon after that Jacob's wife won a screenplay contest at Shriekfest and so Denise Gossett and Mark Steensland the original writer knew that I was sort of getting my feet wet as a producer and also knew that I was coming back into acting and so they took it to me and said maybe this would be a nice vehicle for you. And do you like the story? It won, a, it won a, an award. And I read the script and I was immediately entranced by the story of this woman who was, you know, sort of was settling in her life and had never realized her dreams and maybe would get a second chance at that. Just as I feel like I had gotten a second chance when I came back with your next after not working for a long time and not really getting any phone calls in my late thirties and not working and just feeling like I was maybe a used up has been actress. And um, then I got this role and this potential to play this character. And it took me almost five years to, to get it to the point that it is now after talking to a lot of production companies and, and 
and going through different iterations of the script and working on the material and then trying to put a team together of people that I felt like were like-minded individuals, supportive and encouraging and, and knew a little bit about all aspects of the business. And, and that was definitely beneficial to have somebody like Larry and like Travis who have done other things and were hyphenates and had, you know, they really want to help you. They don't want to just come in and do a role. They want to help you. And, and I mean, you know, with Larry, you, you, you get the, a wealth of experience and knowledge about storytelling and about putting a project together and, and also about character work. He's, he's a character actor and, you know, he has a wealth of information and, and, and understanding that few actors really my age in this business have much more than me. And so I really felt like Larry from the very beginning was a person that I thought should play Jacob and to also give Larry an opportunity to play a character that you don't often see him in, you know, to play this buttoned up minister. And, and, and then he gets to, to expand and have a full fleshed character that goes through his own machinations in his own mind about what he feels about a marriage. And it's, so it's not really, it's not only a story about Jacob's wife, it's a story about Jacob and his wife and Anne and, and how, how, how they manage to navigate this crisis that's come into their life and has changed both of them. And um, so I got a lot, I got a lot of, a lot more with having Larry as part of our team and, and also with Travis being a producer for 20 years and, and then trying his hand at directing and being successful, having just come off girl on the third floor. And then he's also uh, learned how to edit and he was one of the editors on our movie. And so I really did feel like this project was a love letter to all of us in, in the business and the genre and just, just telling a story about how do you keep something going? Anybody can relate to that. How do you keep a relationship going? How do you keep anything going in your life when you feel like it's stale and stagnant? So I think it's a story that can resonate with a lot of people on a lot of levels. Yeah, without downplaying the fact that it is a marvelously gruesome vampire horror movie. <laughs> well, as we well. want to entertain yes. people. Yes. <laughs> as well. So <laughs> it's more than metaphor. Um, but it also embraces the maturity of the cast. You know, you have a lovemaking scene that includes nudity and does not deny the sexuality of who you are at an age that's not normally represented on the screen in that way. Can you talk about that a little bit? That was a very important scene for us to embrace, as you say, and that's a good word to use. Um, life doesn't end. Sexuality and desire and passion doesn't end at a certain age. And we don't often see sexuality on screen depicted by an older couple. And we felt like that was an important aspect to showcase. I mean, Anne has a renewed interest in herself and her body and what's going on in her and the blood flowing through her and, and who she is as a sexual being. And it awakens something in Jacob as well. And he feels these sexual yearnings for his wife that maybe he hasn't touched her in many years. And so it was important for us both to feel like you know, we could, we could go to that place with one another. And I felt very comfortable with Larry, you know, uh, because of our relationship and our history together to, to, to go to those places with him as an actor. And Larry, um, your character is a blood and thunder minister that you avoided the temptation of taking too far over the top, which I was very impressed by. Tell me a little bit about how you approach that. Well, I really, uh, I mean, I'm not a man of the cloth, but I do understand the idea of uh, leading with sort of a moral framework, uh, a community of people. In my case, it's a small independent film company or the extended family of artisans that I work with. And so I, I took that as my reference point. Uh, I did read the good book, uh, you know, and, and I enjoyed playing a stern, slightly impatient a little bit shut down character that that sort of saw the world in a certain way and felt that those were the the real answers and then to bring into that the idea of having that confidence shaken um 
was was a really fun thing to explore and i i liked starting with the uptight character and um i never want to condescend to my character i didn't want him to be too preachy such that you knew that i was mocking uh this world on the contrary i really wanted to take it seriously and you know as a reader uh as a collaborator you maybe see the shortcomings of a character but when you play him you have to be completely empathetic to his point of view and uh i think that um and then you know to go on the journey and see uh his wife uh have this awakening and then just realizing you suddenly have to catch up and you have to be human again and respond and you know uh the way that jacob um deals with that was really the fun the meat of the of the character and the meat of the story and one thing i like to say is that uh i think it was important for me to show his vulnerability and not have it all be about a feminist who's oppressed and then she wakes up and then you know it's all her uh journey it's also him sort of realizing that he's been shut down and and maybe he has his reasons for being shut down and he's dismissive of this old boyfriend but you know somewhere along the lines that's probably suppressing a kind of a jealousy and an anxiety that he's not up to snuff so i think those are the things that i had fun exploring and then as for the sex scene i mean obviously that was fun because it's barbara crampton but, um, <laughs> but, uh i really believe um in a weird way as we are sort of maybe a more liberated society there's also an uptightness uh to the culture right now as we all try to fall within very uh, specific identity lines and so on and so i've always tried to celebrate the eroticism uh along with the horror that is possible in genre filmmaking so i think uh i was excited and travis of course is a very respectful director and he wanted us to be comfortable but i think immediately barbara and i knew no this is not a problem we're going to have fun with this uh because we're from a generation that you know sexuality was part of your expression as an artist uh and you know i have a lot of nude scenes in habit and i've always used that with my actors ever since and said hey listen i know what it's like it's much more embarrassing it's not like you feel powerful when you're doing uh sex scenes it's it's actually like any other kind of choreography it's embarrassing but uh it's completely so, embarrassing to shoot yeah, but sex yeah, scenes yeah. for a director yeah oh yeah i i could tell that too yeah and you know you just you also my approach to this kind of filmmaking is no fuss you know you yeah. want to be able to serve the movie it's not about your mm -hmm. and whether you are embarrassed or whatever your emotional thing is you you're there to serve and so we were very uh let's just get it done and mm -hmm. you know with the crew and it was fun it was uh, but i believe in that as a as a positive expression of part of the palette of storytelling yeah i don't think there was any way that we could have left that out of our story i i just it wouldn't have been as truthful it, you know um it, it it really i mean it it really encapsulated where the this couple needed to go and as soon as we we are vulnerable to one another and make love again it's like we're a team again you know we we found our way back to one another right yeah it, it's less exploitation and more exploration it seems to me totally yeah so let's talk about the importance of film festivals because as more and more movies are being made more and more independently because they have to be made that way because the studios are only really making $200 million blockbusters. The festivals have become so important. Barbara, that's where you found the script for, for Jacob's wife. Um, and it's a way to be able to see the genre films on the big screen that maybe it's the only time they'll be seen on the big screen. So, I know you have traveled to a lot of them, Larry, you've traveled to a lot of them. I have as well. And, and Larry, that's where I've bumped into you more than once. Um, so Barbara, tell me about as a producer, as well as an actress, the importance of the genre film festivals. Well, you know, it's built in marketing. If, if you make a movie that a film festival wants to show, then there's an opportunity if you haven't gotten a presale, 
corporate distributors to see it and 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 gauge audience reaction. And if you're fortunate enough to have a hit at your first festival, you'll get invited to more festivals and word of mouth spreads. And if enough genre aficionados who are the people that come to these festivals like your movie, then um, the, the, the people that are going to buy your movie are going to sit up and listen and go, oh, well, the, the genre crowd and the film festival crowd seems to really like this movie. Uh, I'm going to buy it. And it's also a way for people to just have their work experienced for the first time, because a lot of people do have their films seen for the first time at film festivals. So that's an opportunity for you to showcase what you can do. And I think it's more important than ever uh, because there's so many movies out there and so many people making movies to, to have your work seen and to also try and make the best first movie you can so that you get an opportunity to make a second movie. Yeah. And Larry, you basically live on the festivals uh, because you make so many films as a producer and director that do not necessarily end up on theater screens, but are very popular in other media. Uh, so tell me a bit about how that your company works in that regard. Well, especially because I often support first time directors or maybe first or second time directors. Uh, the festival is the mechanism with which uh, they get their career started. And it's usually the mechanism with which we um, can sell a movie. I had a lucky long relationship with MPI, in which case they were, you know, I was working for them, basically. We made four or five movies together or more. Um, but usually the financing comes together in some way and then you still have to sell your movie. So festivals are essential, but I also have to say it's weird to talk this way because I'm almost referring to the, the previous world. Mm -hmm. uh, Cause I'm also going to make jokes about you get to go out and drink with people and, and, you know, you actually forge bonds and, and, and meet collaborators that will uh, become important in your life uh, as well as the collaboration of, of festival heads with whom you really feel a great kinship that they are supporting you. I mean, I can't yeah. tell you uh, in, in Austin, Texas, over in London, you know, these are some of my favorite people, of course, Fantasia, Mitch up there, you yeah. know, these people are why you feel you have value because you can't say that, that Jason Bloom's going to buy your movie, but you can feel a kinship to these tastemakers. And, um, and so it's just so essential. South by Southwest supported Ty West for years. And then, of course, this is where we play Jacob's wife. So uh, it's just it's a wonderful community, the horror specific and then the bigger festivals, um, Slam Dance versus Sundance. All of these have uh, resonance. And it's really the, the world that I don't know where we are. I felt that the South by did such a good job making it feel almost like a festival experience doing it virtually okay, without the drinking so i mean i was <laughs> very confused um i'm okay but, with that yeah <laughs> so that's uh it's just it's being very important i actually have a film now um barbara knows about this my son's film it's not a genre movie but we're quietly waiting for sort of our festival route to unfold and so you nervously wait for that first festival which will then kind of uh, lay out a, a roadmap for the future um, so it's still very important even though it's been a little weird with the virtual iterations yeah they're able to do it but hopefully we'll be back to live festivals sooner rather than later also uh, just to jump in one last time is uh one thing that everyone here is uh been aware of is that uh, me and my partner Glenn McQuaid uh, have done our radio shows at festivals and we've done them live and I was going to bring that up yeah to see live radio horror radio shows being done in front of an audience at these genre festivals like the Overlook yeah it's been a really fun way to uh, engage with the festival where we also become we're not necessarily presenting a movie but we're 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 one of the sideshows and what's cool is that we've become aware of people who are traveling with their films and we invite them to be uh, in our radio plays. Barbara was in uh, at least two of them when we were at the uh, previous version of the Overlook. Um, 
and it's been a really fun way to engage with the festival. And it's it's great because you put them out on CDs as well, which was a, a, you know an anachronistic format these days, but still the availability was there. Barbara, since the last time you and I spoke on the show, the great Stuart Gordon passed, and I can't have a conversation without with you without talking about that. I miss him so much. The avuncular wonderfully weird sense of humor where you never knew if he was quite joking or not, just a wonderful man. And I, you worked with him more than anybody did. Besides Jeffrey Combs. Besides Jeffrey Combs. Combs. (laughs) Yeah. But Uh, it's a close one. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I mean, I wouldn't be talking to you guys today if I didn't have Stuart Gordon in my life and he didn't give me my first two wonderful roles in the horror genre. Um, I owe him my entire career and I had a friendship with him that lasted over 35 years and uh, he was one of the most important people in my life. So I miss him terribly. Yeah. I, I, let's talk a little a bit about working with him because I worked mm-hmm. with him on Masters of Horror. He did two of the episodes. And one of the experiences was on the Black Cat. He actually said, well, we there's a scene in the movie where uh, Jeffrey Combs' character jabs out an eye of a cat with a uh, scalpel. And he says, well, we'll just go to the pound and get a cat and do that. And it's like, I don't know if he's kidding or not, but I knew yeah. he was. He, w- he wouldn't he do that. Yeah. With, yeah. with you all the time. Well, he, t- he would. I mean, everything that came out of his mouth, you know, you, it was, he, he wanted you to laugh. He always wanted to make you laugh <laughs> and he wanted to make a joke out of something. And whenever you were having a conversation with him, he would also, he would always think what's funny about this. And right. he, he would you know, say some little quip about something. Yeah, but it was very dry. It had a very dry, wry uh, humor. And that was definitely evident in, in a lot of his movies too that carried over yeah, into everything he, he did. Yeah. Well, he loved to break boundaries as well. He really liked to make people uncomfortable with his films and just like with me being a, 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 a vegan and all of that stuff. And he would really screw with me with that cat. Well, no, we just take, he's already yeah. sick. So we just take his eye out. What? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. it was great. So um, are there any particular memories? I mean, in a way, because your career had started before reanimator but really kind of happened with reanimator oh for sure for both of you to have that celebration of the the roots of what you're going to do for the rest of your life happen on that movie tell me a little bit about how that shared experience was with uncle stewart yeah yeah i i i guess i mean you guys were all into horror at a very young, early age. And I don't think that I understood that I was part of the horror genre till I came back with your next, but it all started very early with Stuart on reanimator. I just didn't know it yet. Not that I didn't like horror or I didn't think I wanted, you know, I wanted to do something else or I didn't want to be there. I just, I just was an actress and I was just showing up for work. And then all of a sudden over the years, I realized, Oh, this is, this is what I do. But with Stuart, he was always, he was always pushing you to go to your deepest, darkest place, to the place that was uncomfortable, to the place that would shock people, to the place that would shock yourself. And he would never settle for anything. And if he felt like you weren't giving it your all, he, he was right there at your face talking to you about the scene, talking to you about the character, you know, giving you urgent suggestions about what to look at or what to think about. And I think, I don't, I don't think I would be the performer that I am without him really pushing me in ways that maybe I did feel uncomfortable. I mean, I was definitely in scenes that maybe other actresses wouldn't have done because they were really risky and shocking but I appreciated the level of intensity that he brought to every moment on set and and his 
undeterred um, desire to really go more deeply into a character and into a situation than other people might feel comfortable with. I love how the two of you basically kind of started your film education on that movie, on Reanimator, mm, because mm-hmm. that was his first movie as a director. He'd been a successful theater director with his own organic theater in Chicago at the time. But it's a totally different set of tools moving from the stage to the screen. And I love seeing that both of you had an education in this groundbreaking movie that nobody knew what it was going to become when it was being made, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, again, I I do think that when you talk about performing or acting or storytelling, uh, he came from the stage and then you transfer it to film, um, the energy is the same about what's going on in the scene or the character, but the aperture through which that energy flows maybe is a little bit smaller on screen. But thank God with Reanimator, that being Stewart's first movie, he didn't know that yet. So that movie was more like an opera in a way. You talked about that. You actually coined that to me when I spoke to you the last time. You said that movie is operatic. And I thought, Mick is right. It's more like an opera. And he didn't understand yet because some of his uh, subsequent movies got a little, uh, got a little more nuanced, but that one was really big. And I can remember him talking to us in the scene about, I want to see this. I want to feel this. And of course, with a performer like Jeffrey Combs, he just ate that up and that character (laughs) You know, I mean, that's Stuart's seminal movie and also probably, you know, Jeffrey's seminal character of his career. And uh, we used to talk about the blood and and the emotion. And uh, we used to say to, you know, Stuart would always say, I want more. You know, I want to see more. (laughs) And, And we would say to him, more is not enough. Not enough for you. More is not enough. Because he kept saying, you know, more. And, uh, uh, you know, thank God, because really, I think that was it, it was a magical experience for everybody on Reanimator that that was his first movie. And, you know, Stuart, he's very strong in his opinions and oh, yeah. and uh, and and really would fight for every point of view that he ever had. And, and all of his movies feel like Stuart Gordon movie. They're, they're his movie. They really, they have a personality and it is his personality and never more so than, than even the first one that he did, which was just an extraordinary explosion of, of, of the depth of character and the intensity, especially that the Herbert West character had in that film that carried the whole film. Well, there's a lot to be said. I'm sorry, Larry, I just was going to say there's a lot to be said about making movies independently um, where you don't know or understand the rules and you don't have them imposed on you. So, uh, Larry, you as an independent filmmaker through and through, born and bred in New York, New York based all your life and all your career. Tell me about how that independence has played a part in, in your career as a filmmaker. Well, I do think that uh, I've been able to sort of set my own criteria for what, and it helped me push the the genre in a certain direction for at least myself, but then the people that I was advising and producing for, and really leaning into the idea of what I used to call personal horror, which is to say, telling a a naturalistic story or something that is... um, authentic to the artists themselves, the, the director. I really believe in elevating the director and they don't have to be a writer director, but in any case, the idea of authorship, because I think at this smaller level of filmmaking, that's what you have to offer that can in fact stand in contrast to a bigger production, a big Hollywood movie where they're making sort of some commercial concessions. I feel you almost have an obligation at the, at the smaller level to, uh, to offer something very specific to the to the filmmaker. And so I've done that with my own work, which are personal stories often um, that, that borrow genre tropes to expand the world and bring in imaginative and metaphoric elements. Um, but uh, I also believe in, in the fight 
of the independent filmmaker and, and to bring it back to Stuart, you know, later in, uh, in life, as I had done a certain amount of producing for people like Ty West, um, Jim Mickle and, and others, uh, Stuart came to me and he wanted me to make a film with him. And, you know, it's just, I always talk about Romero and Stuart Gordon um, and, and some of the greats, people that we all revere that still struggled to, uh, to get their films made. And Stuart and I had at least two projects that I was really fighting to uh, find him money. Um, ironically, I think his idea of low budget was a little bit more elevated than my idea. <laughs> I had never really crawled out of the gutter and he was now coming to, to learn that my gutter was you know, filled with the detritus. But um, I can honestly say it was one of the highlights of uh, my goings on over the years that we did in fact make a radio play with Stuart. One of the tales from beyond the pale uh, was Stuart Gordon and indeed Barbara is in it. And that was just such a lovely production. And it was so sweet how seriously he took it and he brought the same level of excellence and uh, the same demands to uh, the radio play that he would to, to a film. So we did get to collaborate, maybe not quite as a, uh, majestically as we had hoped <laughs> wonderful to know well larry what would you say is the most personal film to you would it be habit would it be it would have to be habit mostly because i'm also in it i mean wendigo is a film about uh childhood and being afraid of the dark and believing in mythologies and then you know sort of growing up and learning that the world is a scarier place and that you need monsters to sort of to, to be comforts, you know, to, in a sense, you need religion. I mean, that's what the theme of that movie is that we all need uh, stories to, to help make sense of the world. So that's personal, but um, habit is personal in the sense that it is uh, an individual 33 years old when I made it, but uh, I had made it when I was 18 as well. You know, it's a guy that has a, a bit of a bout with alcoholism and other anxieties and he thinks his girlfriend's a vampire but maybe he's wrong and maybe he's just self-destructive and maybe he's just alienated from friends it's really a movie about loneliness and therefore you know that old tradition god's lonely man that you know technically taxi driver borrows from that uh ethos that in the 60s i think existentialism uh became really um a, a crisis when we realized uh that the world was kind of what you make of it. And uh, so that's why that's personal. But you know, in a weird way, The Last Winter, which seems like a bigger film of mine, that's about climate change, which is something I feel so sad about uh, seeing humanity just miss its opportunity to work together to solve problems. And, you know, corporatism and capitalism and all the things that uh, can, can ruin our lives. And then Mick, you know, you're a vegan, I made a movie felt very passionately about uh, animal rights. And yeah. my, wife, my wife and I made a movie called No Telling, which was, I always joke, that, that should not be the subject of your first picture because, you know, nobody <laughs> wants to see this movie. But um, it's a very passionate story about uh, animal abuse and vivisection and yes. pesticides, you know, everybody's favorite topics. Right. Something you, you want the story told, but you don't want to watch it. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. In fact, the animal lovers were the people who disliked that movie because they hated watching uh the gore uh yeah well it's in the service of saying isn't this terrible so <laughs> it's a real misfire <laughs> yeah so barbara what about you what would you say is the most uh, personal film that you've done well it's probably this one yeah um, i do feel like i i have to hark back to from beyond the movie i did after reanimator with Stuart and and say that that was the first role that I had I ever had that really explored the multi-dimensional aspects of a woman and um, I I feel the same about about this role that this role deeply explores the mind and the psyche and the the spiritual development of this of this woman and this marriage and what it means and and what her future holds so I feel like Though probably those two roles, Catherine Michaels in, in From Beyond, and also Anne and Jacob's Wife, are, are two of my most favorite. 
Well, how great to have one of the most favorite be one of the most recent. Yes. <laughs> it's, I know it can be annoying sometimes, like somebody comes up to me and says, Critters 2 is my favorite thing you've ever done. Yes, it was my first movie. And it's like, I appreciate that. But, you know, I've done a lot in the 30-some years since that movie was made, hopefully growing every time out. But to be able to, to say that your most recent release is one of the most personal feeling things is is pretty glorious right mm. yeah i mean it's 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 meaningful to me and you know uh i'm a long married person and and so is larry and i think sharing that experience with him and also looking at my own marriage and the the issues that i have with my own husband and and knowing that i'm going to keep going on with him <clears throat> and i'm not going to give up no matter what happens and and how, how we're going to navigate that and stay together. And there's definitely uh, uh, similarities in, you know, not quite to the extent of, of Anne's relationship with her husband in the movie, but there are times definitely when I was just at home, just taking care of the family and the kids where I felt like my husband had this huge job and was making a lot of money and thinking, well, you know, what he does is more important than what I do. And um, whether that was me saying that to myself or he felt that about his work. And, 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 you know, when I first started working again with your next, I got a little bit of, huh, well, what's going to happen to me now? And what, what does that mean for me? Um, you know, just examining those issues, but never saying that's it because we're not going to see eye to eye on them. I mean, that just doesn't occur to me. And and I've been able to successfully navigate <clears throat> my relationship with my husband and the ups and downs and the strengths and weaknesses of both of our uh, communication skills at different times um, very much mirrors what happens with Jacob and Anne and Jacob's wife. Well, marriages have many colors. They're not mm -hmm. the same all the time and they're constantly yeah. shifting, especially when both of you have careers and you have children as well. So that must be a complication as well in your life, creatively as well as personally. Yeah, I just think at different times, you know, something becomes more important. And um, I've been fortunate enough to, to be able to give sway to that. When my kids were little, I just concentrated on them and their life. And there was nothing else that I was really doing. Um, I volunteered, I was part of the PTA and volunteered at the school and helped out at their garden and taught garden classes to elementary school kids. And, and that was an important part of my life. And I really enjoyed that. And now when I have the opportunity to work again and be an actor and now going into producing, I'm excited by that challenge. And, um, thankfully I'm not getting too much pushback from my family and their supporting me and, and I'm able to do that too. That's what family's for, right? <laughs> yeah. So Larry, you vi visited the um, story of the Wendigo a couple of times. And the second one was uh, for a program that I created and left before it ever went into production. The, one of the most heartbreaking stages in my career when uh, Masters of Horror went to NBC and became Fear Itself. So um, tell me about your experience. The, the whole point was to continue Masters of Horror, but you couldn't do that with a network that has television commercials, that has standards and practices, all of that. Stuart did one called Eater, where he really seemed to clear all those sensorial problems. What was your experience like on, on doing you know, a network TV show, which is not something that normally is an area you worked within as such an independent filmmaker. I was able to bring my enthusiasm for shooting quickly and uh, problem solving to this uh, wonderful setup. You know, I flew to uh, Alberta <laughs> yeah. and, um, and it's funny, you know, they had already well, first of all, I pitched them a werewolf movie and they said, we already have one, but we have this other script. Would you consider it? And I said, well, I'll read it. And it was a Wendigo story. So <laughs> yeah. I knew that the, the public perception is that I was pathologically obsessed with the Wendigo. But um, <laughs> the truth is, is that I did like 
the script. And of course, I was just interested in playing in the sandbox. So I said, I'll do whatever you like. And um, I, I had actually a wonderful experience because this was an unusual thing. I didn't have to build this whole team. I just stepped into this situation. Um, and so I wasn't as frustrated with the obvious compromise of working with the network because, you know, they had to reduce some of the gore. I, uh, I felt I got most of what I wanted on screen. My real revelation and the reason I have such a warm feeling about my experience is I was trying to figure out how to portray this Wendigo character, which was not going to be an antler creature the way I had depicted it before, but in fact, somebody who had perhaps become a cannibal uh, while trapped in the woods in a snowy uh, winter and had returned to the farm uh, and his wife and brother uh, and was changed. And I needed somebody who could be menacing without an over the top monster makeup. And I thought of Doug Jones uh, and I called the producing team and I said, um, I want to hire uh, Doug Jones. And they were saying, and they said, who? And I said, oh my God, <laughs> you guys, you don't understand. I'm giving you gold. You know, this is going to save the movie because we, we won't need makeup. We just have this wonderful expressive actor. And Doug did it because I pitched to him, you're going to not have a lot of makeup. You know, he's still known for his uh, wonderful work for Guillermo del Toro, where he is in a fawn costume or a, a fish costume and so on. So it was wonderful. It was the most wonderful collaboration. And I loved all my other cast. We shot very quickly. They gave me one last day than everyone else because they said, well, you're an independent filmmaker. Nobody's heard of you. So we're, we're <laughs> going to screw around with you. So that was the, the team of producers that you had left, Dick. <laughs> <laughs> Washed your hands up. Um, that doesn't surprise me somehow. But it, it was heartbreaking to, to leave and to see it um, mitigated in ways that it didn't need to be. But uh, uh, It was, uh, I guess, historically, uh, it had all kinds of other problems. For example, they broadcast for the, uh, up to the Olympics, and then they stopped yeah. it halfway. And then they never picked it up again. So it was an abused child of your wonderful and still beloved series. And ah, it, it is sad because uh, I, somewhere along the line, it got mishandled. But I still did some of my best work and I'll stand. Absolutely. By there, there was some good stuff on that show. Yeah. And I, I wish I'd been able to be there to help it be even better. Me but, too. Me too. But it's wonderful. I think it's it's and it's a sort of a Wendigo story as well. So uh, all good little gems in there. <laughs> all good. So, Barbara, what haven't you done yet that you really want to do, whether it's a, a role that you want to play or a genre you want to attack or do you want to mm -hmm. uh, produce more directly or even direct mm -hmm. something? I want to keep going so I'll see what happens it, it's in my mind to keep producing and I'm working with this company that produced Jacob's Wife Alliance Media Partners and we have a few other things in development that hopefully we're going to shoot a couple things this year so I'm, I'm actively working with them and reading scripts and talking to writers and and directors and that's been really fun over the last um, many months that we've been in the pandemic and locked in our homes um, as far as acting, I, I felt like if I got Jacob's wife off the ground, I didn't need to make another movie. This was such an important story for me that right. I was like, this, 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 if I never did anything else after this, then I would be happy. Um, I did get to play uh, a classic character of horror, which I've always wanted to do. And they're not roles that are often given to woman, women. So I gave it to myself. So there you go. <laughs> um, and, uh, but I, I have, I do have an inkling probably not, not that I need to play any other characters that I haven't played, but when you said any other genres, I sort of perked up. I, I still feel like the horror genre is my home and it always will be. I do. I think comedy is difficult and I'm not a comedian, but I like to think that sometimes I can be funny. So I, oh, I would I like to, <laughs> so I'd like to work in, in that space a little bit more. And I just, I just did a part in a movie called Snow Valley, a small independent film that shot in Utah that just finished. And I have a small part in that, but I get to be a little uh, amusing. And so I appreciated that somebody 
thought of me for that. And so any, any little bit of comedy stuff could be, would be welcome, I suppose. Tell me a little bit about, you're usually not under monster makeup, but you go full vampire in this. Tell me about that experience. For yeah, you. that's super fun. I mean, listen, I love special effects. I've been dealing with them all my life. I love blood and I love methyl cellulose, the food thickener that's in McDonald's milkshakes <laughs> that they seem to strewn upon a lot of sets that I was on and they'll, they'll color it, whether it needs to be slime or blood or whatever, you can make it in any color you want. I love all that stuff. I, I love uh, in Reanimator, we used a cow eye when uh, Dan Kane pulls an eye out of one of the zombies and he's holding this cow eye. And I was fascinated by that. I didn't <laughs> want to hold it, but I wanted to look at it. Um, so I like all that stuff. Um, I like all the, you know, all the, the ways that uh, they use the tubing and everything and the slitting of the throats and the, and the makeup so that you can't tell that that's, not really, you know, an apparatus on your throat and there's a tube under, I think that's all fascinating. Um, but, you know, for me to have the vampire teeth and have the red eyes and at one point in the film, I have these nails, vampire nails. Um, that was really exciting for me to play uh, sort of, you know, a horror movie monster. In a way, yeah. I turn into a little bit of a monster and Oh, a little was, bit. Yeah. Yeah. Was a little, that was a little bit thrilling for me, I have to say. Yeah. So Larry, independent film especially seems to be uh, transitory in that uh, the locations where you get the best uh, deals at the States that give you rebates for financing and funding and all of that stuff. Uh, I know Jacob's wife was made in what is it? Canton, Mississippi. Um the small town setting and the like, rather than doing stage work to recreate that. Uh, tell me a little bit about the experience of, of uh, traveling more. You're, you're based in New York. Most of your films are based there, but the experience of going to places that aren't set up with the machinery to make movies like Canton, Mississippi. Well, uh, I also made a movie in Iceland, which was fantastic. Yeah, the last winter is amazing. Yeah, a very remote uh, landscape, and uh, but actually, Alaska is very set up for movies, and they've made a lot of films there. They have a real uh, robust film community. They made Batman there, any number of things where there's an exotic landscape. They even considered Lord of the Rings for Alaska, but they, I mean, Iceland. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, the the whole idea of indie films is to be resourceful and to use locations that are practical. Um, it's a different type of filmmaking than building a set, which is great fun. I made a movie called Depraved, my Frankenstein story. And oh, yeah. while we did build a set, even though it was a, a Brooklyn loft, it was still uh, like a Hitchcock film where we had fake light coming in a windows and, and, you know, could control everything and shoot nine to five, which is kind of fun. So I really like, all versions, but the idea of being um, portable and, and we dropped into Mississippi and it really did affect, I think, Travis's vision. You know, there you have this town and that town becomes a character. And I really believe that uh, whenever you make an indie film, the, the, the surrounding environment uh, becomes part of the story. And that uh, suggested, you know, we were casting from locals, so we had a more diverse cast than maybe was originally scripted. Uh, so that was really cool shooting in Mississippi. I always try to shoot in my hometown of my home state of New York, either yeah. upstate or in the in the city. And that's because I am a stay at home. <laughs> but also, <laughs> I, I believe in sort of, uh, you know, it's an old adage of the environmentalist movement is, uh, you know, think local and buy local. And yeah. I like the idea of supporting the local community. But it's it, it always has to be driven by what the story requires. I've made a Western and um, I, I didn't, I, I acted in Ty West's Western uh, and we were in New Mexico and that was fantastic. It's all what you want in the frame. So Barbara, as a constantly working actress, you're on locations away from, well, you live in the Bay area mm -hmm. um, as opposed to LA, but um, everywhere you go is a location. Nothing is at home. Does it harken back a little bit to your life in the carny world? 
That's funny you say that. Yeah, I, I like being on the road. I've lived in this house now. Well, I've lived in this town for almost 20 years. I've lived in this house for about six or seven years. And I'm itching to get out again. And actually, uh, my husband and I are going to move back to Los Angeles oh. when our youngest goes to college this this coming fall. Um, so I, I'm itching to go anywhere. It is, it's hard for me to stay in one place. So I really do enjoy going on location and filming different places. I like being on the road. I like going places and being active and being on the road. And I definitely think that's from when I was younger. I, I, I can't imagine living in the same house for 30 or 40 years. I, I just, you know, I want to, I want to keep moving and, and have I've been in my house for 35 years. Have you? Yeah. Yeah. But, wow. uh, but, I have definitely missed traveling this last mm, year. I know. It's all been hard on all of us. Yeah. yeah. Well, guys, I so appreciate you hanging out with us for a while. Good luck with Jacob's wife and everything else. And uh, thank you for visiting the slab here at Postmortem. Thank you, Mick. Thanks, Mick. It's always such a pleasure, man. You're a very soothing presence and it's fun. <laughs> and, and, and your deep history in the genre. It's just very pleasant to see you. Oh, thank you, guys. I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every other Wednesday and subscribe on iTunes. Calling all coffee drinkers. If you've been trying to enhance your daily coffee routine, then Quest has got your back with their brand new iced coffees. Now available in two delightfully delicious flavors that'll be sure to add an extra pep in your step. Vanilla latte and mocha latte. Quest has been on a mission to help fuel you with protein-forward foods you'll love. Each bottle of Quest iced coffee is packed with 200 milligrams of caffeine, the same amount as two cups of regular coffee, plus 10 grams of protein per serving to help you supercharge your day. And did I mention that they only contain one gram of sugar? It might just be time to cheat on your iced coffee with iced coffee. Find Quest iced coffees on Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition. That's Amazon.com slash Quest Nutrition.